Hello and welcome to the What The Heck podcast. I'm your host, Glenn. Every week I explore something unexplained, talk about what it is and look at what else it could possibly be. Research is done as academically as possible and references will be given after the stories. This first week, there's an episode every day. Today, on Halloween, we're looking at possibly one of the most terrifying unexplained phenomena, demonic possession. I'm not looking at the big stories just yet, but I do have two stories for you today. One is from 1865 and the other is from the early 20th century. I'll start with the story from 1865. In the small town of Ilferth, in the Alsace region of France, two children were affected by something sinister. The sons of a farmer, Joseph Brunner, aged eight, and Theobald Brunner, aged ten, underwent a strange transformation. According to the parish priest, Father Carl Bray, the first signs that something was wrong with the Brunner boys was their fascination with diabolical things and their aversion to anything religious. He said they would turn to the wall whilst in bed and draw devil faces on them, playing and laughing with the drawings. He had also observed them sleeping and placed rosaries on the bed, only for the sleeping boy to hide under the blankets and not come out until the rosary was moved. This activity evolved into something a lot stranger with the boys contorting their bodies in awful ways. Bray's records speak of some of these, saying, they entangled their legs every two or three hours in an unnatural way. They knotted them so intricately that it was impossible to pull them apart. And yet they could untangle them with lightning speed. At times, the boys stood simultaneously on their heads and legs, bent backwards, their bodies arched high. No amount of outside pressure could bring their bodies into a normal position until the devil saw fit to give these objects of his torture some temporary peace. That wasn't the only thing the Bruner boys' bodies did that was unnatural. Bray was convinced that they were possessed by the devil due to some bizarre manifestations coming from the boys. His records explain, At times their bodies became bloated, as if about to burst. When this happened, the boy would vomit, whereby yellow foam, feathers and seaweed would come out of his mouth. Often their clothes were covered with evil smelling feathers. The things on their clothing seemed to appear from nowhere, according to the records. No matter how often their shirts and outer clothing were changed, new feathers and seaweed would appear. These feathers, which covered their bodies in some inexplicable way, filled the air with such a stench that they had to be burned. If we needed any more evidence that something odd was going on with the Bruner boys, Bray's records didn't finish here. He describes some displays of clairvoyance, the ability to predict the future. Theobald several times predicted the death of a person correctly. Two hours before the death of a Frau Müller, the boy knelt by his bed 
and acted as if he were ringing a morning bell. Another time he did the same for a whole hour. When he was asked for whom he was ringing, the boy answered, for Gregor Kunigal. As it happened, Kunigal's daughter was visiting in the house. Shocked and angry, she told Theobald, you liar, my father is not even ill. He is working on the new boys' seminary building as a mason. Theobald answered, That may be, but he has just had a fall. Go ahead and check on him. The facts bore him out. The man had fallen from a scaffold, breaking his neck. This happened at the very moment that Theobald made the bell-ringing motions. Nobody in Ilfirth had been aware of the accident. The Bruner boy's parents and Father Bray decided that an exorcism was the only way forward and the only way to help them. Theobald was sent to the St. Charles Orphanage at Schiltigheim near Strasbourg. This orphanage was run by nuns and the superior was called Father Stumpf. For the first three days, Theobald was silent. On the fourth day, he finally spoke. He said, I have come and I am in a rage. When asked who he was, Theobald replied in a non-human voice saying, I am the Lord of Darkness. Joseph was later sent to the orphanage and joined the process of exorcism. Throughout the prolonged exorcism, performed by Stumpf, the possession manifested in many ways. One notable symptom was an infestation of red head lice that multiplied so quickly that groups of people with cones couldn't keep up with them. In frustration, the priest poured holy water on the boys' heads and the lice disappeared. The exorcism worked after about four years. Theobald died two years later in 1871, aged 16. Joseph, who had been less affected by the possession, lived until 1882, aged 25. The Bruner boys manifested a lot of odd things during their possession. A lot of these manifestations affected their physical bodies. The aversion to religious items and contortions of their bodies seemed to be in line with typical possession, and the inhuman voice that came from Theobald in the orphanage is also typical of demonic possession. However, the foreign objects like the feathers and the seaweed are quite strange compared to other stories of possession, unlike this next one. The subject of this story goes under the pseudonym Mary. Her real name has never been revealed. She was the victim of one of the most notable and detailed instances of demonic possession in 20th century America. As a child, Mary was pious, but when she was 14, voices inside her head began to cause her shame because they interfered with her religious practice and frightened her. 
Several doctors examined her and all of them believed she was healthy with no underlying mental health issues. Despite the clean bill of health, Mary began to manifest signs of demonic possession. She would become furious and foam at the mouth when blessed by a priest, could tell when an item had been sprinkled with holy water and knew languages she had never been taught. In 1928, when she was 40 years old, Mary agreed to be exorcised. Her exorcist was a 60-year-old Capuchin monk from Marathon, Wisconsin, named Father Theophilus. He was a man with considerable experience in exorcism. Father Theophilus chose to hold the exorcism at a Franciscan convent in Erling, Iowa, where the pastor, a man named Father Joseph Strieger, was a good friend of his. On her first night, Mary was furious to discover that her food had been sprinkled with holy water, purring like a cat and refusing to eat until unblessed food was placed before her. The next morning, Theophilus and Striger began the exorcism, which took place in a large room that had been specially prepared for it. Nuns who were physically strong were kept close by in case they were needed and Mary was laid down on a mattress on an iron bed. Almost as soon as the exorcism began, Mary fell unconscious, and her eyes were closed so tightly that they couldn't be forced open. A shrill cry filled the room. It was loud, but also seemed quite far away, and it was followed by howling like a wild animal coming from Mary. Theophilus called for it to stop, but it continued anyway. The nuns and Striger couldn't stand what was happening in the room, with the howling and Mary's body and face twisting and contorting. They had to leave the room in groups to get themselves together, but Theophilus was prepared for the sounds and sights of an exorcism and remained in the room the whole time. For days, the exorcism continued and, along with the howling and contortions, Mary began to empty her bowels and vomit in large quantities. Even on days when Mary had only taken in a spoonful of milk or water, she could sometimes disgorge bowlfuls of what appeared to be shredded tobacco leaves or other things that shouldn't have been in her stomach. Eventually, Theophilus learned the names of the entities possessing Mary, one called itself Beelzebub and told the priest that Mary had been possessed since she was 14 and that her father had cursed her, joining the demons possessing her when he died. Mary's father, Jacob, even spoke to Theophilus through Mary, claiming that he had often tried to force her into an incestuous relationship. She had always refused, which caused Jacob to utter a curse that would fill her with demons to destroy her chastity. I'm going to stop the story there to say how disgusting that behaviour is. If it's true, Mary's father had tried to be in a relationship with her, but when she refused, he did everything in his power to force her to. Firstly, no means no. And secondly, I feel like enlisting the help of literal demons from actual hell to get the gross outcome that you wanted is probably not the best of ideas.
And if you have to resort to that to get what you want, maybe you shouldn't be wanting it in the first place. Anyway, back to the story. A third entity called Mina, who was Jacob's mistress in life, joined the conversation, telling Theophilus that she had murdered four of her own children in life, which had damned her. Finally, a fourth entity called Judas confessed that it intended on driving Mary to commit suicide. Whatever Mary was going through, the voices were capable of giving information that she couldn't have possibly known. Theophilus created a test for the entities. On a sheet of paper, a Latin inscription was written and then placed on Mary's forehead. The nuns thought that the paper held a prayer and were taken aback when Mary didn't respond at all. Theophilus then took the paper off Mary and replaced it with a piece of paper that had been blessed outside the room. As soon as it touched Mary's forehead, it was torn to shreds. As the weeks stretched on with no sign of Mary feeling any better, the relationship between Striger and Theophilus became strained. Striger began to regret starting an exorcism in his parish, but Theophilus thought the regret was the work of the devil, who viewed Striger with special malice. During one session, the demonic voices spoke directly to Striger telling him to wait until Friday, trailing off before it could explain what would happen. That Friday, Striger was on his way back from visiting a sick parishioner and drove with special care due to the demonic warning. As he was about to cross a bridge over a ravine, a black cloud seemed to descend on his car, obscuring his vision. He couldn't see anything, but felt the car smash into the railing of the bridge. It came to a stop, but was teetering over the edge. Striga made it out of the car without any serious injuries, even though the car's steering wheel had been crushed. When he returned to the exorcism, malicious laughter greeted him. The demons mocked Striga, asking how his car was. The nuns and Theophilus asked if it was true, and Striga said that it was true, but the demons couldn't hurt him. The demons responded, revealing that they had intended on killing Striga, but St. Joseph had stopped them somehow. It's important to note that during all of these conversations, Mary's mouth never moved. The voices seemed to come from inside her. For two more weeks, the exorcism continued, with no signs of any change. Theophilus changed his plan and continued the exorcism throughout the nights to give the demons no time to rest. He prayed for three days and three nights to no avail. By the 23rd day of full-time exorcism, Theophilus was exhausted. From the sounds of it, so were the demons. They were less aggressive now and less likely to complain at the exorcism's torture. Theophilus took his shot and demanded that the demons left. They agreed. On December 23rd, Mary broke free of the nun's grip 
and stood up on the bed. Striga demanded that the demons put her down, and Theophilus blessed her and once more demanded they leave her. Mary dropped back onto the bed and began repeating the demons' names over and over until ending the ordeal by shouting hell a few times. Almost immediately, Mary regained consciousness, praising her faith for healing her. After two very different stories of the same situation, it was definitely worth me looking at Google Scholar to see what I could find in the way of studies. All of the results are in reference to mental health problems, which don't seem to fit with the two stories today. Mary was given a clean bill of health, so that's unlikely the cause of her possession. The Bruner brothers showed some very strange manifestations. There's a possibility that there's seizures involved in these cases, because some seizures can cause the body and face to contort uncomfortably but it still doesn't explain the feathers, seaweed, voices, or the clairvoyance. I've not gone too deep into research with this story because I intend to look at possession again. And if I give you all the theories now, there won't be anything for me to look at later. For now, I'm gonna put a big question mark over this and claim it as unsolved until later. The story from today's episode came from the 1982 Reader's Digest book, Mysteries of the Unexplained, pages 103 to 104. References for the episode and links to studies will be posted on social media for you to have a look at. Speaking of social media, you can currently find me on Facebook at What The Heck Mystery Podcast, Instagram at WT Heck Podcast, and you can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash what the heck podcast currently there are no tiers to the patreon but once the ball starts rolling there will be tiers with extra special things for you i've also set up an email address watch the heck pod 3 at gmail.com i'd like you to send in your stories of the unexplained so i can read them out in secondary episodes but if you have any issues with my phrasing or think that some of the things that i've said are insensitive please don't be afraid to let me know and I'll address them in episodes as I record them. Oh, 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 oh.